This morning's scripture reading is from the 44th Psalm. You can find this on page 402 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided in the chair pockets, or at the end or the middle of the side aisles. Again, Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You were with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your right arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we we have boasted continually, and we give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn for those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day day long my disgrace is before me. The shame has covered my face. At the sound of the the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and you have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us in the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is God's word. We are continuing our series on emotions that I mentioned earlier, recognizing that these themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, love aren't always what we experience on the inside, particularly around the Christmas season, where we're often experiencing instead apathy, anxiety, sadness, maybe at lost ones who are no longer with us, whatever it might be. And what we see in God's Word is that even in these negative emotions, as we face them head on with God, He wants to transform these emotions, even as he transforms us. So God gives words to express sadness in these prayers, which are called psalms. And the the three most common types of psalms are hymns, which usually focus the believer on who God is. So hymns, there's also psalms of thanksgiving, which help a believer express thanksgiving for what God has done, gratefulness for what God has done. And then there are laments, psalms of laments, which help believers, like Psalm 44, express sadness to God and confusion 
over what is going on in their lives and what's happening even on the inside of them. If you had to venture a guess, which of those three, hymns, thanksgiving, laments, which do you think churches least use in their music and prayers? What would you guess? Shout it out. (laughs) Good guesses. Everyone had a good guess out there, Uh, even even that young lad. But uh, it is is almost certainly lamenting, laments. Brian Doerksen, who's a well-respected worship leader, he wrote a song that says, Come, now is the time to worship, and your love is amazing. He recently tweeted, approximately 70% of the psalms are laments, and approximately 0% of the top 150 CCLI songs, songs we sing in churches, are laments. 70% in the psalms are laments, 0% basically of worship songs in the church. The most popular worship songs are laments. Interesting. Why do you think that is? I think no one wants to be sad. Everyone wants to sidestep sadness, right, to get a more immediate, quick access happiness that we try to call joy. And yet lamenting is God's way of facing pain and sadness head on in a way that leads to a deeper, more authentic, and more lasting joy. So from this psalm, we're going to learn to lament well by, first of all, lamenting lost joy, second of all, relating to God in our sadness, and third of all, rousing God from our sadness. And I'll explain what each of these means. So this psalm was written by the sons of Korah, and they opened their lament by lamenting lost joy. And I would say for any of us who are experiencing sadness, melancholy, even depression, this is a good start to lament lost joy. Reading this first section, it's easy to miss something so obvious that I, I didn't really see it at first. The only way really to, to feel the fullness of pain, the fullness of misery and sadness, is to have also experienced joy, life, goodness of God, right? Sadness is, is bitter because God has been so sweet to us. In verses 1 through 4, the psalmist covers the distance past of God's coming through, his saving acts. And it's old school history, even for the sons of Korah, recalling how God drove out other nations so that they can inhabit this fertile land called Canaan. They faced the conformity of pressure, sorry, pressure to conform to cultures around them. They faced giants, often going toe-to-toe with them, trying to trust in God, and he came through. And verses 5-8, through eight, the psalmist covers a more recent past of God's coming through. We aren't given the details. It's clearly a life-threatening battle. And God comes through. He is victorious for them. But I want you to notice something for these sons of Korah. That God's most effective victory weapon might just be his joy-causing smile. His joy-causing smile upon them. And that might sound cheesy. Verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm Save them, but your right hand, Lord, your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. The light of God's face achieved a victory for God's people. To understand how significant the light of God's face truly is, God commanded priests in the Old Testament to give his people a blessing. Now, God's priests did lots of things, technical things, these sacrificial rituals, but their favorite thing to do is to bless people. Just like probably in your job or your calling in life, your favorite thing to do isn't all the tasks you have to do, but blessing someone. 
doing something kind for someone in a way that makes them feel favored. That was the best thing for the priest. And then here was the prayer that God commands the priest to pray over his people, the blessing he commands them to pray over his people. It comes from number 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. Listen to this. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You can see a priest just smiling. After all the rituals he's done, all the technical things he's done, he gets to pray this prayer of blessing on God's people. God would shine his face upon his people. What does it look like for God to bless his people? A face that shines down with pride, with love, with tenderness, a countenance that is pleased and full of delight and joy, right? That is what we want from a heavenly father. Many have experienced victories and battles that God has wrought on their behalf. But what really wins the day in our hearts is his delight, isn't it? It's great that God does victories and works victories in our lives, but it means very little if God isn't pleased with us, if he doesn't love us, if it's not motivated by a tenderness and delight in us, that fatherly pride, that sense that he's satisfied with us. That's why he goes to battle on our behalf. And that's ultimately what we want, right, in the end. The sons of Korah are saying, as strong as God's right hand and his arm are, so as his smile is just as strong. It's that smile which has been lost. It's been lost for this generation of people. It's been lost for the sons of Korah. And many of us similarly feel the loss of God's smile his countenance in our lives. For these men to work through their sorrow, they begin by lamenting lost joy. To admit out loud, God, there was a time we sensed your presence, we felt your countenance. Here's what that looked like. And I miss it, and I want it back. And that's a courageous act for a person to admit that. There's a tendency to think in today's culture, especially for Christians, and especially for us men, to resolutely forget the past and move on. Why talk it out when you can tough it out, right? That's kind of our theory. As we never actually verbalize the loss and the pain of losing joy in our lives. The psalmist says no to that. He says we need to go to God to limit lost joy. We need to remind ourselves in God, this is what my life looked like under the smile, under the gaze of your countenance. And I miss it. And I want it back. This past week, I had an opportunity to spend five days with my good friends, our missionary friends, Joe and Belkis Denton. And if you know Joe and Belkis, you just want them to do well. They're the kind of people you want to see prosper, to succeed, to see blessed and fruitful. Last year, they asked me to serve on the board of a Tree of Life Ministries in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, or nearby. Their mission is to care for widows, the downcast, especially the orphans, with the words and deeds of the gospel. So as a church, we have supported, you have supported Joe and Belka since 2013 with funding, with prayer, with with people who visited there, and and now with your pastor from time to time. My time with them was was very full, but rich. It was wonderful. We got to see uh, Ruth and Gabriel. Some of you know Ruth and Gabriel. Uh, They've grown up as teenagers grown as, as, as a woman and a man of God, respectively, and now they serve with Joe and Belkis as missionaries, co-missionaries with them. And that kind of mentorship and discipleship is awesome to see. It's awesome to see people grow. I got to visit with Julio Pastrana. Remember him? 
You guys help support him, support him and his family to give him access to water so that he could more easily grow crops to feed his family and help even feed a village and make money for him and his family. You can see in this picture up here the difference between the crops that don't have irrigation and the crops that do. I hope you can see that. That was wonderful. But by and large, guys, I have to tell you that it has been a, a year of bitter losses for Joe and Belkis, which, which they shared. They verbalized with me and with the board. I'm going to share with you some of those losses. They had to let go of their first ever employee, who was also Belkis's best friend. She developed loyalties to a church that demanded her time. She kept on showing up late to help Belkis clean and cook. So they had to let her go. Her daughter was someone, her teenage daughter was someone that Joe and Belkis had invested in deeply, helped graduate from high school and at the top of her class. But she got so carried away into this church that she wrote a letter saying she wanted to sever the relationship. And so the relationship was severed. A contractor who helped helps nonprofits build orphanages, offered his help, and they got together for six months, and they, they had someone who was going to help design and plan and contract out this entire orphanage building to house about 8 to 12 young girls. He sent orphanages all over the world. For six months they planned together until Joe and Belkis realized that he, it, he was inflexible. It was his way or the highway, and it came to an impasse. Their first cross-cultural missionary was an American woman who sold everything to go and be with them, to help them in this mission work. So she sold her belongings, she sold her home, and within the first month of her being down there, she quit and moved back. They had to call the police on a village neighbor who kept trespassing on their property with his cattle, (laughs) going back and forth and back and forth. And only so many times you can tell a person, get your cattle off my lawn, right? You guys know that. And so they eventually had to call the police, and he spent two guys spent two nights in jail, but also spread all kinds of inflammatory words against the Dentons and in that neighborhood. So let me recap for you there. There's, there's the loss of the joy of friendship. They, they lost the joy of provision. They lost the joy of partnership. They lost the joy of a good reputation. These aren't just losses that missionaries experience, are they, friends? These, these losses may sound very familiar to you, And you can add to them the loss of joy for happy marriage, the loss of losing the joy of good health, the joy of a promising future. Well, all I know is that as Joe and Belkis, mostly Joe because he speaks fluent English, (laughs) as he finally shared out loud the loss of these joys and his sorrow because he wanted them back, you saw to see a relief come over him. His countenance began to change because that's the way we begin to move from sadness towards a genuine joy is to say, God, I used to enjoy your smile in these ways, and now I've lost them. I used to enjoy the delight of your face, but I don't sense it anymore. The first step is to to verbalize that out loud, to admit that to God. That's what we see in the first segment of the psalm. In verses 9 through 22, this next segment, we see the sons of Korah give a laundry list of grievances to God. Right, so here's what we learn here. The second sort of step this morning is to relate to God in your sadness. If you're feeling melancholy, if you're feeling depressed this morning, and you don't know why, first, lament your lost joy. Second, relate to God in your sadness. 
And what's interesting as we see in verses 9 through 22 is that God relates to his people in multifaceted ways. We see God as a listener to our sadness. We see God as cause of our sadness. We see God as identifier with our sadness. And I want to walk through each of the ways God relates to us. That might sound like a lot, like that's a lot of notes for the sermon. I understand that. But it's actually quite practical because think of your sadness. Think of your melancholy. Think even of your depression. It's multifaceted, isn't it? There's an emotional component to your melancholy. There's a a spiritual component to it. There's There's a mental component to it. There's a circumstantial component. All these things are closing in on you from different angles. And it's so good that we have a God who relates to us and upholds us from different angles. Many of us hear the words of this psalm, especially this section, and think, you know what? I could never approach God with so much blame. Did that that stick out to you when you read it? God, you've rejected us. You've disgraced us. It's your fault. And some of us think, you know, we we can never relate to God like that. It's indecent. It's irreverent. And yet, here such words are, inspired by the Holy Spirit for the psalmist to utter and in the Holy Scriptures for us to pray. A quality counselor named uh, Dan Allender He's a counselor who came and spoke to my seminary class, one of my seminary classes about counseling. And he asked us, I remember, to whom do you vocalize your most intense anger? He said, would you you do it? Would you vocalize that kind of anger to someone who could fire you or to someone who could kind of cast you out of an uh, important relationship? Likely not. You don't trust them. You don't believe they would endure the depths of your disappointment, the depths of your confusion that you would be verbalizing. The one who actually hears your lament and even further bears your lament against them is paradoxically the one you wildly trust. Is the person you are confident, even though I express this, even though this might be confusing to them, maybe even hurt them, they will not leave the relationship. Those of us who are married, you've probably experienced this, right? You've probably experienced the worst that your spouse has to verbalize or say. And strangely, that's a sign they trust you. So we we see why expressing to God, even against God, is something he desires. He's already borne our blame on the cross. He also wants to bear our trust. Now, when assigning blame, we should probably start by being self-suspicious. We should examine our lives to look at the rebellion of our hearts, the neglect of God. Usually, we are the cause of our own sorrow. And a good father puts sorrow into our lives to say, hey, wake up, turn to me, look back to me, let me be your savior again. But there are certain losses and sorrows for which there is no explanation that are not our fault. I want you to hear that. There are certain sorrows, melancholy, depression, and it's not your fault. You've genuinely examined your heart. The Holy Spirit has not convicted you of sin. And we see that here in verses 20 and 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? Verses 20 and 21, by which they mean, would not God discover this to us? Would he reveal this? In other words, if sin was the cause of these military defeats and the inability to protect our borders, you'd let us know, right God? Of course. Of course he would. So the psalmist doesn't hold back by saying, it's you. It's you, God. Six times in this section, 
we hear him say, you, you are the cause, Lord. And that's the right instinct when we approach God. In our sadness, in our melancholy, when we're so stuck in life, if we trust God is in control of every aspect of our life, then he has either authored sorrow or he's permitted it. So it's okay for you to express it back to him, to express your pain and all of that. So God wants us in our sadness to come to him as as listener and also come to him as the cause. But he also wants us to come to him as one who identifies with our sadness, with our melancholy, with our depression. Twice our psalmist used a comparison to the animal kingdom to make their point. Did you recognize which animal he uses? Not the proud lion, not the magnificent hippopotamus. Verse 11 You have made us, God, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter. Verse 22, yet for your sake, God, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's as if God hears these very cries of heartache from mankind when he sends Jesus. Right? Jesus who identifies himself as the Lamb of God to be slaughtered for the sins of the world. We see Jesus in this psalm. We see a God who will come down and who will identify it with us. In fact, if you read verses 9 through 22 again, you can imagine the God-man Jesus uttering these words on the cross. Look at that with me. You have rejected me. I am like a sheep for the slaughter. Verse 13, I I have been made a taunt of my neighbors. Verse 15, shame has covered my face. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, even though I have not forgotten you, Lord. I have not been false to your covenant. My heart has not turned back. My steps have not departed from your way. Yet you have broken me and covered me with the shadow of death. That is the emotion of Jesus on the cross and why he cries, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Jesus there. We have a God who has gotten down from his thrown on from heaven, took on the flesh, came to earth to identify with all our pain, rejection, and sadness. And through our sadness, we get to identify with him. I want to tell you the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if you know that name or familiar with that name. In 1967, as an 18-year-old girl or young woman, Johnny dove, arms first, head first into the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, misjudging the depth of the water. She suffered a fracture between the fourth and fifth cervical levels of her spine and became a quadriplegic. Over the next years of rehabilitation, she experienced anger. She blamed God. She endured bouts of depression that came in and out of her life. I actually met her as a teenager because my parents told me there was going to be a Christian speaker coming to a house of a neighborhood friend. And I wasn't a Christian at the time, but they, so they told me something interesting to allure me. They said she can actually paint with her teeth. She can paint with her mouth. I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> Let's go see that. I was like a, like a circus trick in my mind of a rudimentary teenager. So I just went. I was so glad I did. I got to meet her. She's since become a well-regarded uh, author and advocate for the disabled through her ministry, Johnny and Friends, based in Southern California. So I was listening to her again recently at a talk she gave on emotions. And and she recounted how despite quadriplegia, she still endured pain 
and her inner back and lower tailbone. People, a lot of people think you're just only numb when you have quadriplegia, but she says, no, that's not true. She would go down the highway, certain highways in California, and she'd get the bumps. It was significant pain, anything. Any kind of bump, any kind of change in levels, significant pain in her life. If that wasn't enough, then in 2011, having lived already as a quadriplegic for 44 years, she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. And after hearing that and hearing all the treatments and surgeries that her doctor informed her she'd have to undergo, she just sat there in the doctor's office with her husband saying, I can't do this, Ken. I can't do this. cannot do this any longer in tears. And the following day, she reading her Bible, came across a familiar verse. Probably a familiar verse to some of you guys as well. I'll read it though. Anyway, Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. So in the early days of her quadriplegia, she was comforted by this verse. Back then she said, it helped me know that I had a Savior who had been wounded with my miseries, that he might become my merciful high priest. He, he identified with me. That's who Jesus was to me. He identified with me. He resonated with me. He was looking out for me. But now, she said, seeing Jesus as precious in my hell, it was a divine invitation to identify with him. She said she had matured to the point and seen Jesus as precious enough to the point that in this hell she was experiencing, She saw it as an opportunity to identify with him. Not so much identify him, identify with me, but me with him, she said. So grieving over the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross, identifying with him, her emotions began to transform. And that is the silver lining of sadness, of melancholy, of even depression. Each week I've tried to offer you guys a a sort of word picture to capture God's goodness and even these so-called negative emotions. How is God purposeful and good to us even through these things? And this week, with sadness, God's goodness is expressed in that we have an opportunity to identify with Jesus. This week's word picture is sadness can help us identify with Jesus. So I have a picture of an ID card up there with Jesus' silhouette. It's the best I could do. Sorry. Identification with Jesus is an opportunity to do so when we're sad. Isaiah 53.3 says this, that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. A man of sorrows familiar with suffering. Our sadness is an opportunity to identify with our Savior. What a privilege, right? As we look to Him, as we consider Him, more and more we are identifying with Him. And that's not the only silver lining of encouragement we get. Our psalm hints at one even more powerful one. So here's the third step as we work through our sadness. We also learn here to rouse God from your sadness, from our position of sadness. Let's read about that again. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. These verses hint at the greatest news of all that God has already been roused. He was sleeping, wasn't he? He was sleeping. Three days, his body lay lifeless. And he was raised to life, and he ascended into heaven. The sons of Korah's painful pleas, an uncertain one, right? It's a question mark at the end of it. 
How long, Lord? Not only, God, why aren't you doing anything, but God, why aren't you near? Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? There's an uncertainty to it, isn't it? And the psalm ends in that tension. It's a tension that's only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He has come to save. He has redeemed. For every person who trusts Jesus, the risen God, comes to live inside of you. That means for all your pleas for God to draw near, to rouse Him from His apparent slumber, they are pleased to a God who couldn't be more near. He lives in here. There's another philosophy in life or religion that deals semi-effectively with sadness. Buddhism. Buddhism is actually pretty effective at dealing with sadness. Might be surprising to hear Christian preachers say that. Buddhism teaches that, one of, that life's goal is to gradually detach yourself from the material world, the end of which is called nirvana. Their belief is that the material world is evil, so you detach yourself from it. So practices like medita- meditation, some forms of yoga, really can help you remove yourself from pain and from grief. Just as on weekends, you can drink yourself stupid, right, to remove yourself from pain and grief. There are all kinds of ways to do this. Such strategies for dealing with pain, however, are essentially negative. Essentially negative. They help people die to circumstances, yes, die to surroundings. But that means you also develop a slow indifference to the world around you. A callousness to every person who's hurting and the realities that are really going on in lives. The Christian doesn't have to detach. He can face, he or she can face, face pain, heartache, sadness, head on, because God lives in here. So the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a, there's a strength inside of Paul that he recognizes I can face anything. I don't have to sidestep it. I don't have to go around it. I don't have to avoid it. I can go through it. So friends, as you face sadness, you can do so calling upon a power that lives inside of you. And you'll start to see your emotions slowly transform. I express it as, as kind of a kind of chemical equation. Sadness plus power equals joy. Not happiness. When you encounter your sadness with a real power, there's a gentle confidence in a Savior who loves you and is smiling upon you. I'm not sure there's any greater witness of the truth of Jesus Christ than a Christian facing pain and heartache head-on with the power of God living inside of them. Let's pray. God, we confess to you this morning. Father, we confess to you this morning that there's a tendency for us, there's a tendency for me, I confess, to be afraid to grieve, to express lament, to express sadness, not only to you, but to others, to really to go there. And yet you gladly listen to our blame. You identify with our sadness. So God, we ask you would help us not run from, but, but bear with sadness, with our melancholy, with our depression, recognizing it as an opportunity to identify with you, our Savior, a man familiar with suffering, well acquainted with sadness. So when we call on you to rouse yourself, to rise up, help us be confident that, that in that promise that a resurrection power really does live inside of us to face that pain, to face that sadness head on.
Our belly may cling to the ground, yeah, like the psalmist says here. But you, the living God, dwell inside that belly, ever near to us. So we call upon you today to rouse yourself and help us again. We ask this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.